the invisible hand of God, is a subject matter that we've been discussing as we've been moving through the book of Esther. We've been looking at how God gets involved in people's lives, specifically believers' lives, because there are passages like Psalm 91 that talks about guardian angels. There are passages like Hebrews 13 that talk about how believers entertain angels unawares. Those are passages, as I keep repeating them, that should become something that you all own by now. We've been looking at this because as we've been looking at our study, we've been talking about how how God is very much involved in our lives. He is not a God who just wound the world up and walked away. And today, we're gonna come to a subject that is somewhat new in the sense I'm introducing it to our subject matter, but it is something we've seen. And where we come to this study today, I gotta tell you, I'm incredibly excited because as you know, I love to study, and when I come across something new to crystallize, I get really pumped. And I'm hoping this morning that you'll be as excited as me, because I think I'm gonna show you something theologically that you're gonna start to see more and more in scripture, and you're gonna say, wow, it was always there, but I never really picked up on it. We've been talking about the book of Esther, and we've been looking through this book, and we've been talking about how the story plays out, how God is gonna protect the Jewish people. And that is what we never wanna forget. The book of Esther is how God would not let the people be exterminated because he has a plan and he has a purpose for them. But as we've been working through the book of Esther, we've been looking at different principles that are operative in the key characters, the story heroes and the story villains. And for the heroes, they have characteristics that we like and we want to have those characteristics because as we talked about it, we want to have, if we can get this up there. Oh, it's not on. My bad. We want to have God's favor. And the word favor has been an incredibly important word throughout the book of Esther. It is how God has his hand on you, <clears throat> does something favorably for you, how he had it on Esther, how he had it on the people of Israel. But we've also been looking at principles to avoid the, 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 the incredibly evil principles that maybe Haman had or the foolish principles of the king, Ahasuerus. We didn't want to have those. And as we come to chapter 7 in our study today, we come to one that is going to incorporate the concept of favor again. You'll see it when we read through the scriptures but it's gonna talk about this, and this is what I'm excited about. You ready? It's about suddenly, suddenly. Suddenly is a concept in the scriptures that you will find repeating over and over and over. And this morning, I'm gonna make a case for you to see how this is an expression that maybe you never noticed before. The word itself will not appear in our text but when I was studying it, it was very evident. And then I started looking at it, and I thought, wow, this runs throughout all of Scripture, the concept of suddenly. My proposition to you is for you to see this as well and for you to understand the significance of it, which I'm going to try and bring together. We have all live life every day the ordinary, right? Ordinary, day after day after day. Certain things happen. 
But then suddenly something happens and it changes your life forever. And what I want you to understand is when that happens, I want you to have the principles that we've been talking about how to have God's favor, the principles to recognize God's hand in your life, and to also recognize when something suddenly happens that you truly, truly, who may or may not be prepared about what's gonna happen, will see that God had his hand in your life. I've got a story as I've been trying to work through different theological true stories that I wanted to apply theologically to the the principle at hand that we're working through with the concept of suddenly. I'm gonna tell you about my good friend Tim and his son, his son, Kobe. So this Monday, this was a restaurant down in Chicago. Tim and I had the opportunity to get together and Tim and I reiterated about a story that I'm gonna share and that is his son, Kobe. And this happened about 15 years ago. 15 years ago, Tim took his family to Yosemite. Has anybody here been to Yosemite? A couple, raise your hand. Okay, you've been to Yosemite. And I think that's Half Moon, the best picture that I can take. And they had rented a cabin or something, and uh, they, they were spending the night there and going round and hiking. And Kobe was about 10 to 12 years old, Tim says, and his brother Caleb was a little bit younger. And as they were walking through the trails, they kind of got a little bit separated, and it was a fine because... Kobe had been scuba diving, and Tim really trusted him. I mean, scuba diving around the world. He, he's a football player. He's tough. You know, if there were bears, he felt like he could handle it. But like any 10, 12-year-old boy, as they were hiking, there were these signs like, don't cross over the, don't cross over the fence. Don't go beyond this area. And uh, something very precarious happened, and I'll tell you about that in a second. That night, as they, after they had all gotten back, Tim, strong believer, conservative believer, had a Bible study with his family. I think they were in a cabin, and as they were going through the Bible study, they're about to put the kids to bed, so if Kobe's about 10 to 12, his brother's about eight years old, and Kobe says to mom and dad, he goes, Tim, Carrie, um, can I, mom, dad, can I talk to you guys separately? And uh, Carrie decides to put, to put the other child to bed, and Tim and Kobe are there all by themselves. And all of a sudden, Kobe just starts crying. And he says, dad, dad, I'm so sorry. I disobeyed you. I, I, I did what I shouldn't have done. I jumped over the fence where it's, the warning signs were. Not only did I jump over the side of the fence, Dad, I slipped, and I fell down the side of the mountain. And Dad, I was gonna die. He was just holding on to a rock or brush, and he was gonna die. And he's crying, and he's telling his dad this, and he says, Dad, that somebody reached down and pulled me up. Tim goes, praise God, you got it. Oh, incredible. You know, obviously he's alive, so he's telling the story. And he's like, you got to thank that person. Who was it? And that's when he said this. He said, Dad, 
I got pulled up. I felt them grab my arm. But there was no one there. There was nobody there. He goes, Dad, I knew it. I knew it. There was no way I was going to live. I'm falling off the side of a mountain, and I'm going to die. This is Yosemite. This is dangerous. I think it was very important, if you don't you know the story, Kobe will die four years later. He will, in that mid-time, become a believer. Again, theologically, you can say, maybe the kid made the story up. There's no way I can prove it. There's no way I can tell you definitively this is exactly what happened. But all I can tell you is, very, very conservative family. Don't look at this kid as somebody that was fly by night. This was something that I look and I just talk about this fact that when we talk about something suddenly, the three concepts, the concepts of having God's favor, God's hand is something I want you to be thinking about as we go forward. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrew, I mean Esther chapter seven. And I just want to tell you if you've been visiting with us as we look at this concept of suddenly how we want to make sure we have God's favor. And as we come to chapter seven, you're going to see how all of this integrates and brings together. The context of our study is that we've been looking at the book of Esther, this evil man, Haman, has been trying to exterminate the Jewish people, and he's got a decree from the king to do that, and everything seems to be going his way until all of a sudden, chapter six, as there is a banquet that he goes to in which he thinks everything is going his way, and then as we studied over the last few weeks in chapter six, there's what the world would call coincidences. And if you weren't here with us, I'd encourage you to get the podcast. There were like 16 different coincidences, things that happened in such a way that you all of a sudden you look and you say to yourself, oh my goodness, from the world's perspective, it was a coincidence, but clearly God's hand was there beginning to turn the tables on this evil man, Haman. If you look at verse 13 of chapter six, before we get to seven, it says, Haman recounted to Zerus, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened as all of a sudden the tables turned and he had, a, he had to honor our queen's cousin Mordecai instead of him getting the honor. Verse 13 says, Haman recounted to Zerus, his wife, and all his friends and everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and Zerus said to him, if Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. And one of the things we said last week, what, 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 what a coincidence around the world's person. What irony in the sense, because the last time we saw her speak, she was like, you know, go ahead, kill Mordecai. And it's like, why didn't you speak up then? With, you know, if I was Haman, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me to, to watch out for the Jewish people? But remember, he's so blinded. And you gotta understand, this is the second man, most powerful man in the entire world. King Ahasuerus is the most powerful man in the world. And this is his second in command, Haman. So verse 14 says, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So we've had banquet one, now we're gonna have banquet two. <laughs> you want me to really confuse you? It's the fifth banquet in this book, but that, we won't go through that. Okay, what we're gonna look through is we're just gonna go through chapter seven 
And if you've got your sermon notes, fill in the blank, suddenly, suddenly Haman gets the consequences for his sins. Look at chapter seven, verse one. We're just gonna tell the story, all right? Haman has been brought really quick to this banquet. Now, verse one says, now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. So this is like cocktail hour. I'm not sure, I'm sure many of you don't go to cocktail hour, at least I hope not, but this is cocktail hour. And they're drinking their wine, it's before the dinner. In verse two, and the king said to Esther on the second day, so it's the second day of banquets, okay? So they've had the banquet before, the second banquet, and as they also drank their wine at the banquet. What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. We've seen that expression. We've seen it, I believe, in the, the situation where John the Baptist gets murdered. It's an expression of generosity. It is not where he literally is going to give half the kingdom. It was a common expression. I'm going to be very generous to you. And so this is part and parcel of the fact that the queen is getting God's favor. So verse three, then Queen Esther replied, if I have what? Found favor in your sight, O king, and it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. Now at this point, you gotta remember, the king really doesn't know what he's done. If you haven't read the story, the king has unwittingly signed off on a decree that Haman has pushed upon him without the king doing inquiry where the king has been petitioned by Haman, hey, let's go wipe these people out. As Haman twisted the laws, took half-truths, things that were halfway true about the Jewish people and made it sound as if they were despicable people. And the reality of it is, is Haman has been fooling and playing games with the king. And Haman has got the king to sign off that in about 11 months from when he signed that decree that every Jew would be killed. That's between 12 and 15 million people, population experts say. So this is a horrendous, vile thing that the king has signed off on. But the queen says, if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition. Look at verse four, for we have been sold. What do you mean we have been sold? Remember, Haman has promised the king um, an incredible amount of money. We believe it's because he expects to ransack the Jewish people which it would be evidence of the fact that they are prospering and that God once again had his hand upon the Jewish people. And so we have been sold, he says, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed and annihilated. Now look at this, look at the wisdom of verse four. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Now listen to me, I believe this is a very descriptive, very accurate, um, re, um, recording of her plea. Look how intelligent she is. I mean, I how many of you use the word commensurate on a regular basis? <laughs> I don't use the word commensurate on a regular basis. You know, I, I think she was not an ignorant individual. I think she's ed, you know educated. She's in the king's court. She's the queen, so she uses that expression. And the very fact that she uses wisdom because you know what? She didn't say, look you idiot king, you signed off on this decree. You're the one who's done this. She doesn't come at it from that perspective. Verse five, then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do thus, basically? 
And it's like, and again, you know, like, you idiot, you're the one who signed, you're the, you know, he had to get your signature. You didn't even ask who it was you were going to be wiping out. So verse 6, Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Suddenly it happens. Bam. All of a sudden, you're, she's been at one banquet. This is the second banquet. Haman at the first banquet thinks he's on top of the world. So much so that he says, I gotta kill, I, I'm gonna have a good day tomorrow. I'm gonna kill Mordecai. This is that same day. This is the day that he thought he'd be rejoicing watching Mordecai die. And you know where he put the gallows? And the gallows, remember, isn't a noose. It is a place where he sticks a spike up his back and watches him torturously die, okay? Do you know where he put it? He put it in his front yard. Verse six, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. And I wish the word suddenly was in there so you'd see it, but that is exactly what happened. He turns and is terrified. Verse seven, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for, they, for he saw that harm had been determined to him by the king. Remember, this is, this is a, a, an environment in which the previous kings of Persia would kill 3,000 people at once on these, on these spears that they put up. I recited that King Darius had killed 3,000 at once. These kings are just vile. He's already deposed the queen. We don't know if he's the queen before Esther, Queen Vashti, what has exactly happened to her. And many think that she was killed. So, you know, they know that this is not a society that things are, you know, hey, you're going to have your due process and things are going to go well. He knows he's in trouble and he's in trouble now. And the idea of what happens, why the king gets up and goes into the palace garden, we're never given the exact reason. There is speculation, there is thought. I mean, he's blown away because he knows, the king knows he signed the decree. He knows he's responsible for this. He knows that he has done this. And there's also thought that maybe he's trying to figure out if there is some kind of rule or regulation out there on how he can now kill Haman or come back at Haman, he's got to think this through. So all of that could be happening as he's processing. And so instead of like jumping and staying right in the fray right here, he walks away and he goes into the garden. But at this time, look at verse seven, Haman stayed to beg for his life. Now, I don't know if you've ever begged for anything. There's been times when I've asked people to do something and I said, hey, I really need this done. I've never gotten to the point where I've begged for my life. I watch movies where people have a gun to their head and you know, you'll see movies and we all watch that and think, I gotta hope none of you were ever in a situation like that where people are begging for their life. It is, listen, that is not, that is not a casual begging. That is intense. That is with tears. That is with pleas. You're trying to convey the urgencies because you understand what suddenly has come upon you. So he's begging for his life from Queen Esther. And verse eight, now when the king returned from the palace garden into the palace where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king says, will he even assault the queen with me in this house? As the word went out from the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now listen, this is one of the most comical irony passages in all the Bible because, look, first of all, when the king returns from the garden, Haman is falling on the couch. 
There's irony in this sense because why, do we, why are we in this whole situation in the first place? We're in this situation as, as we watch Haman basically laying before Esther. We're in this situation because Esther had a cousin named Mordecai who's a Jew who wouldn't bow to Haman. And now Haman is basically bowing and begging another Jew. Great irony in that, isn't there? I mean, you just got to sit there. The other thing is, is that, that Haman has gotten this entire thing with a misprocess of, hey, this, you know, the Jews don't follow our laws. Of course, they, they, they follow the, the Old Testament. And so he's, he's manipulated it. And so there's been a misperception on who the Jewish people are. Well, there's a misperception. Haman isn't there attacking the queen. He's there begging but the king misperceives it. And there's like great iron. Okay, you, you know, gives the king his out. She's, he's attacking the queen. And <laughs> there's no due process. It's funny. I say funny. It's interesting. From Jewish history, the Targum, a Jewish like Old Testament commentary, the Jews hold that at this point, an angel pushed Haman down. So we'll get to heaven. We'll get to ask maybe the angel if that's exactly what happened. But somehow the Jews have thought that historically what happened at this point, you know, Haman's standing there, he gets a little push. Could happen. Could have happened. So I just want you to know in heaven that's something we get to ask. And so Haman is now prostrate. And so verse 9, then Harbana, one of the eunuchs, okay, who, who were before the king said, behold, indeed, the gallows standing at, there, see it? Haman's house, okay, 50 cubits high, which was like 75 feet, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And, and the king said, hang him on it. Now listen, if I can digress, Harbana is mentioned by name, why? Because again, it reiterates the historical accuracy. If you're visiting, you've got to understand, we're living in a day and age when most people believe the book of Esther is a story. The book of Jonah is a story. Adam and Eve is a story. Like they're prince, like Princess Cinderella and, and, and other made-up, old-fashioned people stories. Listen, this is not a story that's made up. These are real people. And so when this book was written, they would have known who Harbana is and, and so we just always have to remember that like when Jesus talks about Adam and when Jesus talks about Jonah, he's referencing them because they're real people. If you start turning the scriptures on its head and you start saying, well, these are make-believe individuals, then anything goes, people, and the historical accuracy of the Bible gets undermined. Harban is a real person, and, and the very fact that this eunuch says, behold, indeed, look at the gallows. Look at, look, look, if a friend of yours got in trouble and you were standing there and all of a sudden they were in trouble, would you say, hey, you know, there's a gallows right there, right down the street. That's a great place to hang them. No, you're gonna keep your mouth shut. It's thought that, that Haman, his character was one of vile and that people didn't like him because look how fast and how quickly this individual offers up where he could be killed. And so, boom. And so the king quickly says, hang him on it. And we don't know, you know, it's interesting. You'll see sometimes when people are being executed, though, I don't know why, and I haven't done enough research on this, on why you, you cover their head. Maybe it is a part of the impending terror that you want to impose on them. 
Um, but you'll see that even today where, where people being executed are having uh, a cover fully over his head. We don't know if it's a, a pillow cover, whatever was put on Haman, he's in that. And so it's, it's, it has all come upon him suddenly. And so verse 10, they hanged Haman on the gallows when he prepared, which he prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. That expression, to be, have anger subsided, it's used in Genesis chapter eight when God saw that the floodwaters had begun to reside and his anger had been subsided. Sort of like, okay, you've met the, uh, you, 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 you know, I was ticked and now I'm, I'm, I feel like I've acted to where my anger has been flushed out, okay? And so now Haman is dead. And this is just the story. This is how it suddenly Haman gets the consequences. I mean, think about it. You're going to a dinner party. Um, You're going to an event and everything seems like it's gonna be positive for you. But then bang, within minutes, you're dead. Suddenly the table's turned. What I'd like to do is over the next few weeks show you some principles, how this plays out in scripture. And so if you have your sermon notes, Fill out the blank, fear the consequences of God's sudden judgment. And I put Leviticus 26 up there because that's one of just a few. What I want you to understand is when you start recognizing this concept and you start to understand the fact that things can happen suddenly, all right, even though this word didn't appear in our scripture, it's, you're gonna start to see, wow, it's all through scripture. There are three major Hebrew words for sudden. I'm not gonna present them to you. All you need to know is that the the Jews had it for the Old Testament. We're gonna find some New Testament words as we go through. At the heart of understanding this, the reason I want you to understand suddenness here, please understand, what I want you to understand is why you have to fear God. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, 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 And it's a healthy thing. It's to recognize you don't play games. And I want you to see, as we go through this, we're gonna talk about how, as, as we see sudden things come, and the idea here is of sudden judgment. And judgment isn't like I'm gonna make an analysis. So judgment is you know, where I'm bringing punishment, or God is bringing punishment. And it, because I just wanted you guys all to see these, I put one of the few times I've ever done this where I'm putting the scriptures up on the screen. And the very first one comes from Leviticus. This is in Leviticus 26, and I know it's not a passage that you regularly read, but when you work through the book of Leviticus, it's a book of where, you know, the Old Testament law, and God is, in chapter 26, is around there, is he's giving all these things. If you follow this law, if you do the things that you're supposed to do, I'm gonna bless you. But what you need to see here in Leviticus 26 is an incredible warning from God to the Jewish people. Read this with me, I'll read it out loud. God is saying to the Jewish people in Leviticus 26, 14 to 16, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statues and your soul loathes my ordinances so not as to carry out all my commandments, but rather to break my covenant, in turn will do this to you. I will summon a what? A sudden tear against you and consumption and fever that, you know, that, 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 that will make the enemies, make the eyes fail and the soul languish. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it. You see, I bolden that, that's my bolden. The idea is, look, and this is where, this is where every one of you need to think, 
boy, I'm, I'm getting away with my life. I'm, you know, God really isn't, for the, for the Jew there, it's like, okay, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing my stuff. I'm living maybe not ostentatiously saying I hate God in the Jewish community because if somebody did that, they could be stoned. But I'm just gonna live my life and inside my heart, no one knows, but God knows that I loathe him. I don't like him, I don't love him, I don't want anything to do with him. And I'm just moving along with my life and then boom, suddenly God says, that's it, you're done. You're done, you're done. And, and this isn't just a one-time thing. What I want you to see is here in the book of Job, as Job is talking in about the wicked people. And he says, they spend their days in prosperity. Now, do you understand what that means, they spend their days in prosperity? They're spending days, weeks, months, years, decades. They think that they're getting away with it. And maybe that's somebody here today. They think, you know, look, I look, I'm living my life and God really hasn't stepped in. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't stopped me. But the book of Job has a lot of good principles that you understand that are universal, that were from Old Testament to New Testament are still applicable. And he says, they spend their days in prosperity and then suddenly they go to Sheol. What do you mean? Suddenly they die. Suddenly they die. I'm not gonna mention the name, but I was shocked Friday night. It was one, one, of, the most, the, the, one of the hardest nights that I've ever had because somebody that I know, somebody I care that was in their 50s, I just found out they suddenly died in the middle of the night an unbeliever, and, and, and I just think, how appropriate. Suddenly they go down to Sheol. Sheol, Sheol is the grave, yet they say to God, go away from us. We don't even desire the knowledge of your ways, because that's the reality. We don't want anything to do with you, God, and if that's you today, fear God. This is what I'm talking about. You have to fear sudden judgment. You think that you're getting away with it, but you don't know when God is gonna pull the rug out from under your life, and today could be that very day Suddenly it happens. This is something that runs through scripture. As one of Job's um, um, friends talks to him, he talks about the fact, his name is Eliphazer, he talks, he's a false accuser, but he, he's trying to apply something that they know to Job. I believe it's wrongly applied to Job, but it's a truth that's out there. That's one of the struggles, just if I can digress on studying the book of Job. You have to know Job has four friends, three of them, off the top of my head, Elihaz, Boaz, uh, are people that are going to apply truth incorrectly to Job. This is one of them. He says, the earth belongs to the powerful man and the one who is honorable dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty and the strength of, er of orphans has been crushed. Therefore, therefore, traps surround you and sudden dread terrifies you or darkness that you cannot see. The idea is that Eliphaz understands if you're a wicked person, all of a sudden, suddenly, judgment comes to you. Judgment comes to you. I just want you guys to begin to understand fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. You think you're getting away with something, you're not. And I'm gonna tell you one of my favorite Psalms. This next one is Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is perhaps, if there's 150 Psalms, this is a top 10 for me. Psalm 73 I'll tell you, and I'm gonna beg you to go and you read it on your own. Psalm 73 begins where the psalmist talks about my foot had almost slipped. What do you mean my foot had almost slipped? Basically, the psalmist is saying, I looked around the world and I saw wicked people getting away with everything. And I got this close, I got this close to what? Cursing God and saying, forget it. I'm gonna live the way I wanna live. I'm gonna live wickedly because I see the prosperity of the wicked and they're getting theirs. But then you come to the middle of the psalm and he says, until I came to the, basically the throne, I started praying and I looked at God and I started to realize, wait a second, in the end these people lose. 
And this is, from, this is verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden tears. You catch that? This is how God deals with wicked people. That they think they're getting away with it. They think they're winning, but they're not going to win. And in the end, they all die. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't know when your life is gonna end, and God can take you in a moment, and there is no second chance. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, first comes death, then comes judgment. And you don't get a sign in the morning, and all of a sudden it slipped under your door. Hey, today's the day you die. Now, obviously, some people get sick, and they realize they're failing. That's often a gift of God. But the majority of people, sometimes they just die, and, and then it's suddenly, and the terrors are the reality of hell. Now listen to this. This isn't just the fact that I'm giving you, I've given you four verses. I could have given you, if you want to write a list down, if somebody wants to email me, I'll give you this. This concept of suddenness suddenly comes in Psalm 610, Psalm 644, Psalm 647, Isaiah 29:5, Isaiah 30, verse 13, Isaiah 47, verse 9, Jeremiah 4:20. I mean, I, I, I had to stop. This is running throughout all the Bible, this concept of suddenly, suddenly, suddenly. So I started thinking, wow, how did I miss this? How did I not see this? How does this continually appear over and over and over through the scriptures? And how about this one for us who are New Testament saints? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, as the world is working and going through chaos, which they are now, and they are all saying peace and safety. Like, we want peace and safety. we got to have peace and safety. So this is 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Did you ever see this? 1 Thessalonians 5.3, while they are saying peace and safety, then what kind of destruction? Sudden destruction comes upon them. Not just any kind of destruction. Sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape Listen, the world is suddenly going to be thrown into the tribulation. There's not going to be a chance to get ready once that line gets crossed, once God says you're in it. It is sudden. It is sudden destruction. So I want you to understand how important it is to fear the, cons- the consequences of God's sudden judgment. This is why it's so important for you to make sure you're walking rightly with God. It's so critical that you, first of all, are born again by faith alone and Christ alone. And then second, that you're walking in the light as God himself is in the light, as 1 John chapter 1 tells us. One more. Fear the consequences of being a worthless person. Will you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6? In Proverbs chapter 6, one of the chapters that is dealing with the incredible pressure, our our pursuit. Hey, make sure wisdom is a part of your life. And in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 to 15, the the author has just talked about the fact that he doesn't like lazy people. God doesn't like lazy people. And so he says in verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks, is a a wicked man, is the person who is with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife, therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. Why? Well, this word for suddenly, here is tied to the worthless person. Some, some of your Bibles might have Belial. Um, it, it was a, 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 a 
corrupt God, but it was basically used for the person that, that is a vile, evil sinner. It is a person that Judges talks about the fact that there were um, these pagans that lived in Gibeah. They were worthless people. That in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27, that the worthless person is always trying to dig up evil and constantly trying to think of way, new ways, I believe, to do evil things. Proverbs 19, verse 28, the worthless person is one who makes a mockery of justice and would be somebody that would be like a judge that takes a bribe or somebody like a policeman that would turn away from the criminal and just let him go or the politician that writes laws that he knows are gonna kill babies. They're worthless. God looks at these people and says, you are someone that makes a mockery of justice. You scorn justice and, and they undermine society. So as you go through this, look at verse, verse um, 12. He is one who works with a perverse mouth. It isn't just that he's dropping swear words. It's the words that he used you cannot trust. They're not honest. They're not forthright. They say one thing, but they're going to do another thing. Okay? This is what I want you to fear. Don't be this type of individual. Verse 13, they wink with their eyes. They signal with their feet. They're always doing deceptive things. They're not being up front. They're like, okay, I'm giving a signal to somebody else. This isn't what, I'm saying something to somebody here, but I'm really intending to do something else. And you who are watching me, you know that I'm doing something else because I'm not being forthright with this individual. I'm winking with the eye. Verse 14, with perversity of his heart, continually devises evil. And then they divide people. They spread strife. They're constantly wanting to deal with, um, with, with having people have animosity towards one another. And it's one of the things that we've watched in our society today. We have to be honest. As we all look, and there's, there, people have said, some, some politicians today aren't working to bring peace. They're always trying to divide humanity, dr- divide our country. And if any of you have ever dealt with anyone like this in your own personal family, and I have, it is incredibly painful that they continually try to bring division amongst people. It's horrible. That's this type of person. And if this is beginning to describe you, fear God. Today, I tell you to repent. Because you look as we constantly go through, it says, verse 15, therefore, his calamity will come, what? Suddenly. And this is a principle that we all have to know. We all have to fear. His calamity will come suddenly. And there, the synonym for suddenly is instantly. He will be broken and there will be no healing. Because God brings judgment upon people and he says enough's enough. I don't know when a line is crossed. I, I, I was uh, thinking about this. I can remember, for those of you who have been here for many years, about 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to speak on the Gospel of John. And I can remember coming to a passage in the Gospel of John for New Testament saints and recognizing, oh my goodness, there's a time when a line is crossed and God says, there's, it's done, you're done. Wherever you are, you're done. And that's what I want all of you to understand. You could be thinking if you're, you're, you're getting away with something, you're not. It just, God has given you grace. That God has, gives people grace. He lets the worthless person think they're getting away. And, and, and part of it, there's the psalm, maybe I'll bring this next time when we study this, is the psalm that says, don't be fearful of the evil people who are prosperous. God is only doing this, the wise person understands, God is allowing this so that we can, that, so that it brings the person ultimately to judgment. Just like Haman was. Haman was brought into a situation where he could be fully exposed and fully brought under the light in the public eye. What a wicked individual he is. 
Well, I need you to understand, fear the consequences of being a worthless person. Listen, you know, a worthless person, therefore his calamity will come suddenly. You see how that's highlighted, verse 15 there? You want to make sure that you're not a worthless person. All right? And what we need to understand as, as we talk about the idea of suddenly, look, life events come suddenly. I can tell you all my life, you know, things have happened day by day, ordinary day, but then all of a sudden something suddenly happens. And I think if you live long enough, that's true. And when that happens, you want to have favor. If you fall off the side of a mountain, you want to have God's favor, right? And, and, and if, you're, if you're in a car accident, you want to have God's favor. Some of you have been in car accidents. I've been in situations where it's just, you know, all of a sudden, boom, something happens. You want to have God's favor. In history, wicked people, wicked enemies of the Jews, disobedient Jews that we've seen, suddenly something happens, and there's no second chance. And what, the reason I have this proverb put up here is, look, there are situations where bad things are going to happen, consequences, are, things are going to happen, and look at this proverb. A righteous man falls seven times. So seven times, this is the idea of perfection, right? Or completion there. Some, you're going to fall, and, but he's going to rise again. But the wicked stumble in time of calamity. The wicked people, something happens to them, and they don't get back up. Why? Because they don't have God's favor. And so ask yourself right now, do I stand on God's side? And am I walking the way I should be? Because I want to have God's favor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the reality of what you've shown us in scripture that wicked people at times seem like they're getting away with things, but in the end, you bring judgment. Help each one of us, Father. Help us to walk rightly with you. For the person that's not a believer today, my passion, my hope, my desire is that something like this has put the fear of the Lord in them. It's the beginning of wisdom. God sees all, God knows all. Nobody gets away with anything. And for the believer that might be dabbling in sin, cause them to understand God takes no joy in a, a, a son or a daughter walking in darkness. And I pray, God, that they would repent today. Help us, God, also to be greatly encouraged by the fact that you see all, you know all. And, not, and, and so, Lord, I can't always promise that you'll pull one of us up from the side of a mountain. But I can tell everyone here that God loves them if they're a believer in Jesus Christ and that God will have his hand on them and I want them to trust and have that peace. And their life might not always be the smoothest but there's also a reason for that. You've told us to trust in you that keep, keep us neither rich nor poor. Rich so that we don't forget you, poor so that we don't dishonor you. Help those who are in need, God, always just to just be able to trust you and that you're watching and you know their life. But I pray, Lord, that as we talk about suddenness over the next few weeks, that there's just an awareness that we get away with nothing. In Jesus' name, amen.